Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us here today on the Fearless Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anne-Marie Barter, and today we have a very special guest. Her name is Cynthia Thurlow. She's a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting, highly sought after speaker, CEO, founder of Everyday Wellness Project. She's been a nurse practitioner for over 20 years and is a two-time TEDx speaker. Her second talk on intermittent fasting has been viewed close to 7 million times. She's been featured on ABC, Fox 5, KTLA, CW in Medium, and The Entrepreneur. Cynthia has recently listed in Yahoo Finance as one of the 21st founders changing the way we do business. She is the host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast, which was listed as a 20 podcast that will help you grow in 2020 by Entrepreneur Magazine. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm super excited to have you because I loved your TED Talks. I think you're just spreading such an incredible um, message really about what is possible with health and wellness. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I've been looking forward to this interview. Awesome. So I know you are the intermittent fasting guru, but I'd actually like to hear how you got into intermittent fasting because I don't know. Yeah, I mean it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting story. I think largely because of perimenopause. You know, I was in my early forties and doing things all the wrong way. I had a super stressful job as an NP in cardiology. My husband traveled. My kids were younger. I was probably over exercising and probably too restrictive, meaning too low carb. I wasn't purposefully under eating, but you know how that goes. You get busy and you forget to eat. And so when I hit perimenopause, I always say like, it's almost like I flew into a wall. Uh, I had to reassess everything in my life and slowly rebuild back habits. And so one of the things that had been suggested to me by a colleague was, have you ever heard about fasting? And I was like, oh, that sounds crazy. You know, that cuts against the grain of everything I'd ever been taught as a clinician or as a woman. And yet, you know, I took my, in my typical, I'm a skeptic. I have to do the research. I, you know, bought Jason Fung's book, Complete Guide to Fasting and starting doing it. And it wasn't, I think initially I came to intermittent fasting because I wanted to lose the weight. I've always been a very fit, lean person and 10 pounds on a five foot three person makes a big difference. And so I was really committed to figuring out, you know, what was it about this time in my life that I had to change and so it wasn't that I initially lost weight and why I continue with intermittent fasting is that I had profound shifts in mental clarity. I suddenly had more energy. I was sleeping better. I felt like I could get through my workouts uh, a whole lot more easily without you know, having food in my stomach because I had been conditioned that you have to eat before and after exercise. And so initially I came to it out of curiosity, stayed because of the benefits beyond the weight loss piece. And then eventually when I tweaked my diet enough, then the weight loss came. But I think a lot of it was self-discovery and, and then the recognition that perhaps this is a strategy I should use with my female patients. And so that's kind of where it stemmed from. And obviously it was never something that I thought I would be known for. It's just something I knew a lot about. And I think I was kind of ahead of the curve. I think there were certainly people doing it uh, before I was uh, publicly 
but I was certainly way ahead of the curve and, and, you know, certainly, you know, working in cardiology, a lot of our focus is on pharmaceuticals and interventions. And I kept saying to my colleagues, you know, not that I was talking about fasting a lot with those patients, but I kept saying there has to be more to this. You know, we don't focus enough on prevention. We wait until someone has a disease. And then, you know, by that point, we've trained our patients to uh, ask for a pill instead of changing their diet, changing their lifestyles. And that's really where it all starts from. You know, you can take all the pills, but if you don't change the other pieces, oftentimes the disease will continue to progress. And so, you know, from my perspective, I wanted a sustainable strategy, not only for myself, but for my patients. And, you know, the really cool thing is that it allows people to have a little bit of control. There's so much in medicine that doesn't allow patients to have control. And yet this is a way that we can give it, give our, our patients or our clients, empower them to take better care of themselves and, and do it in a way where they feel like they have some leverage or some control over what's going on with their bodies. And what... Were you ever able to incorporate intermittent fasting with um, your cardio patients? And, and what did you see? Uh, good question. So I left clinical medicine in 2016 and started doing intermittent fasting in 2015. So, you know, at the time, um, no, I was not, although I was talking to them a lot about food. And that was, you know, my, my cardiology colleagues, many of whom were super supportive of the food piece. They just didn't want to talk to their patients about it. I don't have time. It's not important. And I would say it all starts with food. So in that clinical environment, no. But the irony is a lot of those colleagues have come to take classes with me and they're super supportive. So it really wasn't until I had my own practice and you know, initially really started on the nutrition piece. I was like, you know, I've written enough prescriptions over 16 years of being an NP that I was like, if I don't write another prescription, it's, you know, I've checked that box. Like I don't, if I'm doing it now, it's, it's more out of ego. And thing that I was able to you know, focus on strategies that were sustainable and empowering. And that's really where it stemmed from. So what's interesting to me is when I reflect back on 20 years in Western medicine, first as an ER nurse, and then as an NP, I'm so grateful for those experiences. I think it's really important for me to acknowledge that because that's made me who I am. It's made me the clinician I am today, but I get excitement now from people getting wins that I think are so important, you know, really learning how to fuel your body, how to, you know, get better sleep. That to me is a bigger win than, you know, being an adrenaline junkie and sitting in an ER and ICU trying to manage a very acutely ill patient. And although I enjoyed that challenge at that point in my life, my wins come in different ways now. And I truly feel like this is the work I was meant to do. I always tell my kids, being a mom and a wife is obviously the most important thing that I do. But I would say next is being an entrepreneur and a clinician because you know, now I get to impact a larger group of people. And I, I'm so truly grateful for that. And as an introvert, um, it really amazes me when I think about the impact you can make with, you know, talking to people on podcasts and, you know, doing public speaking engagements, which, you know, a lot of us are still doing those things. We're just doing them virtually as opposed to in person, but I'm very, very grateful for that opportunity. Awesome. So I want to definitely go back to the perimenopause piece because mm -hmm. I really believe that this is something that is not talked about at all. And, yeah. you know, and people will come in to the office and they'll say, well, I have fatigue. Mm -hmm. I'm constipated. I can't gain weight. 
and I have dry vagina. <laughs> it's like under, <laughs> under the breath or, or they're leaving and they're like, so I, I have a little bit of drive, but nobody wants to talk about that. No. And they're so uncomfortable. So can we go into some of the changes mm -hmm. you're going to start to see with perimenopause mm -hmm. and how the, how we can combat some of these things? Yeah. And I think I always want to send a message of hope. I think that the better you take care of yourself as you're making this transition, and I like to call it reverse puberty because I have <laughs> teenage boys. And so their, you know, their hormones are ramping up and, you know, mine are kind of trending down. But for anyone that's listening, that's, you know, late thirties, early forties, you're there, you know, we are born with a finite amount of eggs and so we have some degree of ovarian, I don't want to use the word failure, but it's almost like we're running out of gas. You know, those, those ovaries are producing less and less progesterone and progesterone is this hormone that's designed to make a, to calm us down. It helps with sleep. It's anti-anxiety properties, you know, uh, tends to, to trend upwards in the second half of our menstrual cycle. And so as progesterone is, uh, you know, lessened and, and we do have backup systems in our bodies that help with this but we start seeing symptoms of predominating estrogen. That doesn't mean estrogen dominance in a bad way. It's just, it's relative to the fact that we normally have this balance between estrogen and progesterone. And suddenly we're thrown into a state where we have more circulating estrogen. And if we're not properly packaging up and excreting it, uh, it can recirculate. And so this is when you have heavier periods and you know tender breasts and people can be moody. And it's not to suggest women can't be moody around their cycle anyway, but just everything's kind of ramped up. And so, you know, this is the proliferation hormone. So when things are proliferating, people are, you know, oftentimes gaining weight, you know, whether it's around their hips or their abdomen and, you know, it can impact sleep quality. And, and so I, I like to remind people that if you're not taking care of yourself in your 20s and 30s, you can oftentimes weather that, you know, sleep quality, stress management, over-exercising, crappy diet. But when you get into your 40s and you're perimenopausal, you know, it's, it's a cruel twist of fate that if you don't take care of yourself, your body is going to let you know. And, and I, I will be the first person to say, I trained at a large research institution on the East Coast, arguably one of the best in the country. And there was never a discussion about perimenopause. I'd never heard of perimenopause. And I'm a nurse practitioner. And so I, I like to remind people that you know, even though I'm a medical professional, I had never heard of it. So do, you, do we expect our patients to really be familiarized with it? The most common symptoms that I see are sleep disturbances, weight gain, energy issues, underlying food sensitivity, immune, immune system issues, because your gut takes a hit at that point. And, and then that's just the tipping point. You know, people can have other issues, but our, our normal mentality because of outdated dogma that we have literally been fed throughout our lifetime is that we need to exercise more and eat less. And that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And that calories are important. And I am of the first belief system that, you know, first of all, our bodies aren't designed to eat all day long. We aren't designed to eat many meals. We shouldn't be snacking. And so with this degree of inflammation that's going on in the body and, and this relative insulin resistance that we do see around this time frame, it kind of feeds all these symptoms that people experience. So I, I remind people that perimenopause is the time that we can rewrite, re, can rewrite the patterns because I think there's this conditioning that women get into their 40s, they gain weight, they feel flabby, they, they feel you know frumpy. I never understood why there were all these grumpy nurses. When I was a 20-something nurse, there were all these grumpy middle-aged nurses. Well, now I kind of get it. The joke's on all of us, right? 
And so I, I just like to remind myself that we get to rewrite our narrative. We don't have to accept those kinds of things. And so a lot of my platform, when I'm talking to people about middle age, is that you do have some control. I mean, I'm not trying to behave like I was 30 or 25. I don't, I'm happy to be where I am, but we know that you can navigate middle age a whole lot more easily, but you have to make changes. And for some people, they're willing to make changes, any kind of change to harness feeling good, sleeping well, you know, having some libido. Uh, for a lot of other people, they're not willing to. And, and that, that's a decision that everyone has to come to on their own. But for those that want to thrive in the second half of their lives, because 40% of our lifetime is in menopause. I'm going to say that again. 40% of our lifetime is spent in menopause. So it is nearly half of our lifetime. Why would we want to not feel good? And so the concept of limiting beliefs is something a lot of what I talk about, you know, trying to empower people. And so, you know, we learn strategies like eating less often and prioritizing sleep. And yes, my kids think it's funny that I'm always in bed before they am, but I legit need more sleep than they think I do. Um, and not over exercising and really tapping into restorative therapies and prioritizing things like meditation and grounding work and really doing the work. So maybe you got by in your 20s and 30s without doing the work, but now if you want to maintain a healthy weight, you don't want to be dealing with hot flashes, you don't want to have a dry vagina, and yes, no one wants to talk about that, you have to be proactive. And you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all philosophy. I know we were talking about this before we started recording, but it's all about bio-individuality. So if you take, you know, if I were to take 10 women that are 45 years old, all of them would need something completely differently. I mean, it would all have to be tweaked. And, you know, really working with someone that understands the changes that a woman goes through and you feel comfortable and honest. And the one thing that, that I think is really interesting is that even for myself, when I did that first TED Talk, I was uncomfortable talking about middle age. I remember I, I read a statistic that, you know, women at, at the age I was at, 47, that, that was the end of the line. That was really the end of most people's, you know, 100 years before, that was really the end of, of someone's lifetime. And yet now it's middle age. And so really understanding that, you know, we have the opportunity, we can make choices that can allow us to age uh, gracefully, truly. Uh, it's not about pretending not to be your age. It's feeling the best that you can in your skin. And, and I'm a huge believer in um, dispelling, you know, beliefs about age and, you know, certainly what we're capable of. And, um, you know, I, I just think that we've, we largely as a society have just accepted a lot. Like I'm going to be X amounts overweight by this age. I'm not going to have good sleep quality. I'm not going to want to have sex with my spouse. I'm not going to be interested in um, changing my diet. And, and, you know, those are limiting beliefs. So a lot of, a lot of what I do is kind of reframing and changing the narrative so that women can live their best lives. And I love that. I love all of what you said. I, I want to um, go back to what are you seeing stress-wise with these women, um, potentially with these cortisol levels where, you know, they're over-exercising, they're not taking care of mm -hmm. themselves, they're staying up late. What are you generally seeing with the cortisol levels as we're going into, into middle age or perimenopause? 
Um, well, I think a lot of it's that they're, they're burning the midnight oil. They've gotten away with not sleeping properly for years and years and years, especially probably started when they had young children and then they mm-hmm. just got busy, you know, their kids went to bed and then they could be super productive. Mm-hmm. And so really examining with them, you know, do you want to do the work? You know, you got to change your diet. You got to remove inflammatory foods. You have to put yourself to bed earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, looking what also drives cortisol, you know, is it, is it an insulin resistance issue? Are they... Do they have an underlying gut infection? Are they, you know, dealing with toxins that they haven't dealt with? And, and I, again, it keeps going back to you can get away with a lot up until a certain point. And middle age is when you know the dues have to get paid. Either you're going to take the time to do the work, or you are uh, definitely going to continue to uh, be inflamed. And and I see a good example. There's a lovely woman I'm an acquaintance with in my neighborhood, and she runs eight miles every day. And I see her out running every day and I'm like, gosh, she looks more haggard every time I see her because in her mind, she has to run and run and run and run and run. And so looking at the fact that certain types of physical activities, as an example, will drive that cortisol up. And I mean, and let's be honest, you could go to the gym and lift heavy and that could bump your cortisol, but sustained elevation of cortisol is not a good thing. Like if we're being chased by a rabid animal, it's you know, <laughs> sympathetic response designed to get us away. But if in, in our kind of overly harried, um, overstressed existence, we are sympathetic dominant. We are just wound up all the time. We're in front of technology. We're in front of life 24 seven. We're going completely contrary to the way our bodies are designed to thrive. And so I just remind people, I'm like, if you get back to basics, it's not about making things complicated, but it oftentimes takes a bit of rewiring our habits Just saying, okay, I'm going to get up in the morning. And instead of like jumping in my clothes and getting in the car and rushing to the gym and doing a workout and coming home and racing to work. I mean, this kind of like you're on the hamster wheel. It's like, okay, maybe I get up in the morning and I meditate and maybe I take a walk in nature. I know that makes people laugh. I I walk with my dogs a couple miles every single day. And this morning it was 34 degrees, which is pretty cold for my area. Probably makes you laugh being in Colorado. Um, (laughs) But it was kind of a vigorous, I'm like, this is good. We don't want to be comfortable. We want to uh, you know, we've gotten too comfortable as a society. We have food that's accessible 24-7. We can be tapped into technology 24-7. Um, if we want to be sloths and sit on the couch 24-7, we can do that. But I, I invite people to the opportunity to change the narrative, to, you know, change that mindset around your lifestyle. And certainly if COVID did nothing else for anyone in the United States or, or elsewhere, obviously it's, it's not unique to the United States, it allowed a lot of people to reprioritize. And, and that's, that's what I'm seeing is that people are making changes based on lifestyle. You know, maybe, heck, maybe you don't want to live in this area anymore. My realtor was telling me that people are leaving big cities in droves because they want a little less stress. They want less traffic. They don't want the pressure. And so, you know, maybe that's not a bad thing, but I, I would say cortisol is driven up, you know, by, you know, this sympathetic response, but it can also be driven up by infections and toxins and, there's just a multiplicity. It's the to-do list. It's the running to-do list in your brain that has you going 24-7. And your body doesn't distinguish between being chased by a rabid animal from the day-to-day stress. Like It's not a good example during COVID, but I live in a part of the country where the traffic's pretty horrific. And so the average person, I used to say like the traffic we deal with in day-to-day, our traffic isn't nearly as bad right now because there are less people commuting, but the normal stressors from day-to-day, our body doesn't distinguish those. So we can't be stressed all the time because if we're stressed all the time, that cortisol stays elevated and cortisol, although beneficial, if it stays elevated over time, it's going to erode our health in very non-beneficial ways. So 
I, I find that the word balance is elusive and obviously probably not entirely realistic, but finding some degree of balance is really critical in our lives. And that oftentimes means eliminating things and that can be hard. You know, I'm a people pleaser by nature and my team's constantly working on with me saying no. So two things that, you know, I made a, and it was, it was a tough decision, two things in my business that I said, I'm not doing this anymore and I'm not doing that anymore. And so of course, every week we get inquiries for these two things. And my team is just politely saying, no, Cynthia is not doing those things right now because it's not a good use of my time, but it frees me up to focus on the things that are most important. So for everyone that's listening, it's, it's really acknowledging that there are probably things that need more of your attention and those are the things you should focus on and then letting go of other people's expectations or, you know, we, we're all big girls and big boys and sometimes we just have to say no and no is a complete sentence and that's totally okay. Got to protect your energy. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great point that you bring up um, because I think women especially mm -hmm. can relate to that. And I think I personally can relate to that people pleasing mentality. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes I don't know how to draw good boundaries. And then mm -hmm. that gets me feeling irritated when I have yep. to do X, Y, and Z. And then I don't enjoy it. And it takes mm -hmm. away from that. And I hear that time and time mm -hmm. and time again with women. Are you seeing the same thing in your groups? I am. And I think it's giving people permission to say no. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I grew up in a, a household where I was the oldest daughter. And so I was expected to behave a certain way and be a good girl and, you know, just, you know, do what I was told. And, and so I think even, you know, when I became a nurse and a nurse practitioner, still that mentality. And then being a business owner, I've come to realize I can't be that person anymore. And I end up, you know, sometimes defeating defeating. I end up disappointing some people, but that's not really my issue. That's for them. Uh, and so even, you know, with family members, you know, last year I got very sick and almost died and it was the greatest teacher because it forced me to determine, decide like, what do I really want to be doing? I mean, do I enjoy these toxic relationships with a few family members that I don't really want to be around and they trigger me in bad ways? And so creating more boundaries, I think boundaries for anyone are really part of that growing and maturation process. And that can happen at any point in our lifetime. So now I, I really strive to not do things I don't wanna do and really try to ensure that the people I really care about know. And obviously, you know, you know living, uh, living a, an existence where I, I thrive in my business and enjoy my business and enjoy helping people because that's really what it comes down to. You know, I'm a very service-driven individual. And so I always say like, how can I serve my my niche better? How can I serve my clients and my patients better? That's really what's of most importance to me. And so I drown out all the other stuff and just stay really focused on what best serves, you know, myself, my family, my business. And then beyond that, it's, you know, it's just extra stuff. It's a daily practice, isn't it? To like re go back to that. Cause then you get into that mode. You're like, gotta please, gotta please, gotta please. But you almost have to go back to that every day. I mean, I think yeah. that's where meditation Yep, it's so absolutely. important. Absolutely. And so going back to um, perimenopause and menopause, what are some of the most common misconceptions you hear um, mm -hmm. folks say around perimenopause? 
Uh, I think the biggest one is people assume that it's going to be easier than it is. So that's, that's one misconception because we don't talk to people about it. We talk mm -hmm. to them about menstruation and birth control and pregnancy and postpartum. And then there's not a lot of discussions that go on. So I would say that's the first thing. I, I think there's also this misnomer that there has to be a pill to address every symptom. You know, I know for my own personal experience, I, like most perimenopausal women, got very heavy periods for a few years. And it was, I used to call it jokingly the crime scene period because I was so afraid I was going to get caught somewhere and then have a problem. And so for any woman listening, you understand what I'm saying. And so, you know, when I talked to my GYN, she was like, oh, well, let's put you on synthetic hormones. Let's ablate your uterus or let's just pull it out entirely because you're done having kids. And I looked at her and I was like, nope, nope, nope. Uh, and so I think there's this misconception that the only way we can control, uh, you know, heavy periods is to prescribe synthetic medications, synthetic hormones, which we know really uh, do us a terrible disservice, or, you know, mechanically or surgically intervene to lessen or completely eliminate the uterus. And, and what isn't discussed with so many people is that a hysterectomy isn't all that benign because, you know, you, you destroy the, um, one of the blood supplies to the ovaries. I mean, you're going to be, you're, you're getting into menopause is going to happen a whole lot faster than you probably were prepared for. So that's, I would say that's another one. I think it's the limiting beliefs about, oh, you're 47, you're 48, you're 49. Who cares if you gain 20 pounds? Well, you know, a lot of people don't, And ever said that to me, I probably would be completely offended. But I think that there's this mindset, well, you're middle-aged and so this should happen. And so I sometimes will explain to people that, yes, you generally start losing muscle mass that accelerates after 40 and you can you know, develop sarcopenia, which is this muscle wasting, but there are ways to work around that. Uh, you know, Yes, you may have more body fat, but again, it goes back to how much lean muscle mass do you possess? You know, can that be mitigated by a loss of, of estrogen? Because there are estrogen receptors all over the body. I don't think most people realize that. And so I think it generally tends to, to, those limiting beliefs tend to be around those three things. And then people are always surprised to know there's workarounds. I'm like, there is always a workaround. I am the biggest believer in, I, I had this one patient who hadn't slept well in over 15 years, which I found astounding. I was like, I don't know how you're still standing, having not been able to sleep well for 15 years and she obviously also had gained a bunch of weight because she wasn't sleeping well. And those are, those are closely interrelated. And so I told her, we are going to figure out how to address your sleep. And honest to God, it took nine months. And then we finally figured out for her what she needed support with to be able to sleep through the night. And so I, I just think that you know, we're expected to kind of suffer in silence. You know, it's almost as if there's this focus on much younger women. And then once you're done having kids, there's less of an interest in really having those tough conversations because we're a very ageist society. People don't like talking about age. I mean, my gosh, my mother from, from the, I was probably 10 years old. My mother told me she was 29 every year until I figured out, I was like, why do you keep saying that? And it was because generationally they didn't talk about their age. And so you learn those lessons. We don't talk about our age. We certainly don't talk about symptoms we have about aging. It's not okay to get wrinkles. It's not okay to be able to not be able to dress like a 22 year old. And quite frankly, I wouldn't want to. Um, it's it just all these kind of limiting beliefs that we've been listening to throughout our lifetime that can cloud our perception of, of what this time in our life is supposed to be like. And so I always like to come from a place of hope 
because there are always opportunities. I mean, I certainly, all the people that I, all my entrepreneurial friends that are already made that transition live very full, active lives. And I bet you they would say your 40s are empowering, as are your 50s, because you care a whole lot less about what people think. Like I generally don't really care. <laughs> this is terrible probably to say. I care a whole lot less about what people think of me because I know that I'm doing good work and I know my priorities are you know, aligned with where I'm going and um, there's just a lot less pressure. I think in my 20s and 30s, I was definitely part of, like most women, that was probably you know, looking to my peers for validation for certain things, whereas now I'm like, I just don't care, <laughs> which is so And it empowering. makes you more powerful. It makes your message get out a, mm -hmm. a lot more when you can actually be true to yourself and not yes. so concerned about what other people are saying, right? Exactly, exactly. So looking back, you know, I know that the the weight gain. And I think in your TED talk, you said two thirds of all women are overweight. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, in looking at that comparatively with menopause, I know one of your big tips and tricks is mm -hmm. intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing with intermittent fasting in easing some of this perimenopause transition into menopause transition out? Well, I, I think that, you know, first and foremost, we need more research. That's, that's definitely one, one problem. A lot of research that's been done on intermittent fasting is done on lab animals or men or postmenopausal women. So women who've already made that transition. So from my perspective, it's highly bio-individual. I think there are strategies you have to use uh, with women that are still cycling versus women who are no longer cycling. And I think that's really critical that, you know, women, there are again, lots of missed opportunities, not only for research, but really for focusing on this as a strategy that can help mitigate a lot. And, you know, I think if women knew, like I'm in my late thirties, um, I probably don't need as many meals as I'm eating. So maybe I'm going to cut out snacks and then I'm going to go from cutting out snacks to, you know, maybe not eating for 14 or 15 hours and seeing how that feels. I think things as simple as that can have such a huge impact on how people feel about themselves, you know, their general, you know, giving their digestion a break, allowing for more recycling of junk that our bodies don't need, you know, lowering insulin levels. And, you know, one of the key points about intermittent fasting that I think is really important for people to understand is we want to be metabolically flexible. And so what does that mean? We maintain a healthy weight our insulin levels are low. Every time we eat, we increase, you know, our insulin is secreted in response to eating, but eating, you know, a diet that's more protein and fat focused. And by this, I don't mean eating copious amounts of fat, just it could be saturated fat in a piece of steak that can be your fat. Focusing more, like changing up your macros can have a huge net benefit on, you know, our insulin response. And so obviously carbohydrates, especially car processed carbs are going to have a much greater impact on that insulin response. And Unfortunately, whether women like to hear this or not, you have to change your diet in perimenopause. You might not be able to tolerate gluten and grains and dairy anymore. And alcohol may suddenly become a problem. We know that it does a couple things. We know it suppresses melatonin, which impacts sleep. We know it bumps up cortisol. We know that it you know, um, you know, dysregulates not only blood sugar, but also estrogen metabolism. And so you, you dysregulate you know, key hormones that need to be working optimally at this stage of the game and, and that's just not happening. So I, I think there's multi layers of how intermittent fasting can help mitigate some of that, but it, it has to be made with choices. Like you can't do intermittent fasting and have a garbage diet. Like I, I think there are always people who would say to me, 
well, I still eat lots of McDonald's and I intermittent fast. I'm like, well, eventually that's going to catch up with you because we know, um, and, I, and I'm getting ready to interview Dr. Kate Shanahan, but she wrote an amazing book called, uh, well, she wrote a, a couple ones, but Fat Burn Fix, where she talks about things like the seed oils we're exposed to in our environment, you know, cottonseed, soybean, canola, which are all crap and garbage. So if you've got them in your house, toss them right now. But we know that if you consume those oils, it propensiates the desire to eat carbohydrates. And so you start to think about like, this is why we are getting heavier and heavier year to year because we eat more processed foods and these seed oils are in everything. And it really drives these hormonal responses that we're going to continue to eat. You know, we can dysregulate hormones like leptin and ghrelin that control satiety and, you know, appetite. And, and so I, I do think much to your, your initial question that intermittent fasting combined with other lifestyle modifications can be hugely beneficial. I mean, I can't tell you how many women in their 60s uh, are doing intermittent fasting and they're like, this is the first time I've been able to lose weight in like 20 years. Or, yeah. you know, since I've been in menopause, I've not been able to lose this weight and now they're losing weight and they're doing it, doing it by themselves. You know, they're, they're not taking a pill to lose weight. You know, they're not using a gimmick. And don't get me wrong, um, there are times and places if you're, well, no one's really traveling a lot, but if you're traveling and maybe you have to have a snack, but you know, for the most part, they're eating nutrient dense whole foods and they're fasting and those are the only things they're doing and they're losing weight. So I, I really think that that metabolic flexibility is really key to you know, transitioning into perimenopause and menopause and doing it without as many symptoms. Like I can tell you, I'm closer to menopause than not. And I don't get hot flashes. The only time I will get a hot flash is if I drink alcohol, which is why I don't drink alcohol because it's just not worth mm -hmm. it. It impacts my sleep quality. So you have to just make choices based on what's most important to you. So, you know, life is hard. I saw this great meme last week and it was saying life is hard. You know, marriage is hard, divorce is hard. It was saying pick your hard. So for anyone that's listening, all of these things, none of these things are super easy, but you just have to decide for yourself, what do you want more? You know, for me, I'd rather sleep well. I'd rather be a healthy weight uh, than, you know, eat foods that don't agree with my body anymore. And I, I think for me, the, the great lesson is dairy. A lot of women are not, are really get inflamed by dairy and dairy is in everything. And so, you know, once you stop eating cheese and ice cream and it's, you know, they have some very addictive qualities as I'm sure you probably have discussed on the podcast before. And so really navigating food choices and recognizing that, they can either be your greatest benefit or they can be a huge detriment to your goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that um, a lot of times, you know, we see the wheats, um, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes some of the other grains, dairy, soy, mm -hmm. you know, some of the oils that are carcinogenic, so yeah. many processed foods, people do not realize how much processed food they're eating, I think, yeah. as a general rule. But the thing that you said that I, I think... Uh, I know a lot of people are thinking is, well, how do I know if I'm over exercising? Mm -hmm. Well, so do you have more, do you have more um, energy after you exercise or less? So when I went through my, my perimenopause hitting the wall at the time I was doing like CrossFit conditioning classes and I was exhausted after I worked out mm -hmm. and it took me a solid year of honest to God walking. That's all I could do. I was so depleted you know, so depleted, my entire endocrine system, which governs all your hormones was so depleted that that's as much as I could do. So a good gauge of how much activity is too much is how are you sleeping? Are you overtraining? 
Um, are you feeling more energetic? Because my feeling is if I'm exercising properly, I am energized. I feel good. Like today I did a three mile walk with my dogs in the 34 degree cold <laughs> and then took a solid core class. And that was perfect for me. That was exactly the degree of intensity I needed. And yesterday I lifted. Uh, but it's, it's about finding what works best for you and your body. But a, a sure sign that you are not, uh, you don't have the proper alignment in terms of your activity is, are you, do you have a plateau? How is your energy? How is your sleep? Uh, you know, what, what's your diet like? Because that's the other piece of the puzzle is that a lot of times people overtrain and then they don't eat enough. So their body can't actually properly recover because there's just too much stress. Like we talk about hormetic stress uh, as this fine This is one of the things you can easily do too much. You have to find, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Goldilocks and three bears, you know, which bed is just right. You know, same thing with cold exposure or heat exposure or, um, you know, high intensity interval training. It's, it's finding what that, that, you know, point at which your body is stressed in a beneficial way, but not too much. And that can take some give and take. I, I think for a lot of people, they tend to overdo it. Mm -hmm. You know, for a lot of women, I tend to attract like two avatars. And so mm -hmm. one is the over-exerciser, over-restriction, trying to force, you know, a, a square peg in a round hole uh, kind of person. And they're so hard on themselves. And I have to tell them, I'm like, okay, so much of this is mindset. We have to retrain and reframe a lot of those negative thoughts. Um, you know, anyone that's had an eating disorder and it can trigger those propensities and so you really have to be careful and, and know yourself well enough to acknowledge like, am I really doing the work? Because people will come to me and they'll say, well, yeah, this is all I'm doing. And I looked at their sheets and I'm like, well, you're doing, you're over-exercising, you're not eating enough food or you're overeating carbohydrates. And ladies, if you're listening and you're in perimenopause or menopause, I hate to say this, you can't eat unlimited carbs. Like I have to portion out my carbohydrates. Like yesterday was a high carb day. And so I probably ate two cups of squash. And I don't like, I, I, I'm a very happy low carb person, but on my higher carb days, I really have to work hard to get those extra carbs in, uh, especially being gluten and grain free and dairy free as well. But you can't just eat whatever you want anymore. I know it's not fun, but in order to, you know, hit your macros, you know, get the proper amount of protein and healthy fats in, really have to mitigate your use of carbohydrates. I'm not anti-carb. I'm not suggesting everyone do ketogenic diets. But I do think most people could benefit from less carbs in their life. And certainly, the more metabolically flexible you are, the healthier weight you are, the more carbs you can eat. So if you've got to lose 10, 15, 20, 30 pounds, you need to really be considering a lower carbohydrate life. And that could be 100 grams of carbs. I, here's the other thing. People always ask me, what does that mean? And I said, well, a strict definition of ketogenic diets is 30 grams of carbs or less. But you know, the average person who's low carb might be 50 grams, but the average American's consuming 200, 300, 400 grams of carbs a day, low carb for them might be under 100. So it's really relative to who you are and how you live and how you eat, and then use that as a starting point. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good point. And people get so angry when you really want to pull them back on the carbs or they have no idea where the carbs are coming from and how much they're actually eating. And I've, I've said this a couple times before, but there was one night I went out to dinner with a friend. I'm not a big eater outer. Um, mm -hmm. And I had a glass and a half of wine and I'm a, I'm a geek and I like to check my glucose. And mm -hmm. the next day, my glucose was at 200. 12 hours wow. later, my 85 
glucose fasting was at 200 the next day. That's wow. what it does. I mean, that yeah. is terrifying when you look mm -hmm. at how much inflammation I sat with for 12 hours yeah. and I had no symptoms, yeah. which is even scarier. And yeah. people are going through life like that, not knowing where their glucose is or mm -hmm. that it's swinging or that it's all over the place. Yeah. And boy, that directly affects your hormones and everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? And here's the other thing, like we need protein and fats through our diet, we don't need carbs. I know that triggers people in bad ways, <laughs> but our body is really savvy. And so for every 100 grams of protein we consume, a genesis. And so I like to remind people, our bodies can take care of that. Like we genuinely don't need carbs. We like carbs. I mean, carbs are a huge part of our culture, but we don't need carbs. And uh, when I tell people that, first of all, they can't wrap their heads around it because they're like, that goes completely contrary to everything we've ever been told. But I always say like, just think about it. Like we're not going to get obese eating broccoli. We're not <laughs> going to get obese eating uh, a steak. Uh, we do get obese eating, you know, the, the perfect combination are carbs and fat together. Like there's an amazing book called Salt, Sugar, Fat that talks about the processed food industry and it's a book I recommend a lot because you start to realize that these highly processed, highly addictive foods are designed to trick our brain into thinking we're not full. And so we never register any satiety and it's designed to be that way. So, you know, when you go out to a restaurant and they give you like chips and dip and you just can't get enough or French fries or that are probably, you know, cooked in seed oils that have a half-life of like four years. So it's going to take your cells in your body like two years to get rid of this yuck. Um, I, I just encourage people to, you know, get educated, be honest with yourself. We're so disconnected from our bodies that we sometimes don't even register how we feel when we're eating. We don't know what hunger feels like. We don't register what it feels like when we're full or satiated. We, we just eat like in this, we're just kind of like passively eating. It's not, if you go to other cultures and I think of Spain in particular, Italy, people really sit down for a long period of time and enjoy the company and they're not in a rush to get through a meal. And Americans, you know, if you look statistically, we spend more time watching TV and binging on Hulu and Netflix than we do actually preparing meals. So like our, our priorities have shifted so much that we need to disconnect. We're disconnected from our bodies, from our eating, from our lives. And I think cumulatively that really adds up and, and we learn bad habits. Like I tell my kids, you know, we're, 100% distance learning, which is depressing. You know, I've got a seventh grader and a ninth grader and they're doing great. They're really champs. But I was explaining to them that all of us work from home. And I said, every day I stop around when I'm going to break my fast and I go downstairs and I eat. And my kids think it's funny to bring their lunches upstairs because they've never been able to eat in their bedrooms. And I was saying to my husband, it's not healthy for us to spend our entire day sitting, looking at a computer and working and eating. You know, we have to, we're, we need to get up and move around. We need a break. We need to get off of electronics. And so that gives us an opportunity to, you know, look outside, you know, right now we're looking at leaves falling, but, you know, just engaging in a, engaging our brains in different ways is really, really important because when we're sitting in front of electronics, we're not even registering what we're eating. We're just, mm -hmm. it's the process of just get the no. meal in and move on. Absolutely. Yes. And is there anything you feel like, I know you've peppered throughout some helpful tips on what people should be doing. Is there anything that we've left out that people could do on their own? Talked about intermittent fasting, easing the exercise, really looking at the diet, cutting the carbs. Yeah. 
you know, cutting um, some of those food sensitivities. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say that, you know, the sleep quality piece is really critical. We know that, mm -hmm. you know, we get a peak uh, of surge of human growth hormone, which helps us be, build he healthy, lean muscle. I've got a dog who's, <laughs> <right here. laughs> um, helps us build healthy, lean muscle. And, you know, when we get really high quality sleep, we tap into the glymphatic system, which is this kind of waste and recycling process for our brains. So I remind everyone, like sleep is foundational to our health. For anyone to suggest otherwise, they're missing out on opportunities to get key health benefits. We know that if you're getting high quality sleep, you can better manage your blood sugar. We know that insulin tends to be obviously lower. We know your cortisol is better balanced. Um, it impacts every biological processes in the brain. So you know, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about sleep and stress management as being really core pillars of health and wellness. And you know, one of the things that I think is important is if you're not sleeping through the night and you're a woman, you should not be doing intermittent fasting. You got to work on the sleep piece first, because like I mentioned earlier, these are all hormetic stressors. So whether it's fasting or, you know, good quality sleep or cold exposure or heat exposure or HIT, high intensity interval training, if the sleep piece is off, your body's not in a position to, to tolerate another stressor. And I'm not talking about one night of bad sleep. I'm talking about the people who've had years of bad sleep or they just regularly, if they look at 30 days on a calendar, they might get two good nights of sleep in a month. You should not be doing intermittent fasting until you get the sleep dialed in. And there are always reasons why we don't sleep well. And you know that requires you know working with a, a talented practitioner like yourself or me or other you know function-trained individuals that can help you really look for the root cause but I would not add in intermittent fasting if you're not sleeping well, especially if you're a woman. Yeah, awesome. And anybody else that should not intermittent fast? Uh, if you can't distinguish when your blood sugar's low, so if you are a diabetic and you can't tell when you're hypoglycemic, your blood sugar's low, it's not a great strategy if you have a disordered relationship with food, whether it's binge eating, anorexia, or bulimia. I see a lot of fit pros on social media that hide their eating disorders by intermittent fasting. And, and obviously there are always exceptions. In fact, I get angry emails from people who tell me that they've been able to cure their eating disordered behavior, but you really have to be working with a therapist, someone who's really talented. If that's something you want to do, you have to be actively working on your disease. Um, you know, I, I generally encourage people if they are underweight, you know, a BMI less than 18, if they've recently been hospitalized, um, if they're frail or if they have chronic illness that, you know, really necessitates having a conversation with their healthcare provider, it doesn't mean that it's a no, but I think it's important that if you're going to be um, addressing a chronic health issue by intermittent fasting, that you're having a conversation with your healthcare provider, because you may need changes in your medication. You may need to be seen more frequently if you're losing weight, uh, you know, just so that they can be on top of that. I think having an active uh, participation or active, you know, collaborative kind of uh, situation with those healthcare provider or your healthcare team is really beneficial. And then I would say, you know, for people that, you know, are just, you know, I, I would say I get a lot of questions about kids and teens. I would just say, I, I recommend you not intermittent fast. Um, if you're still growing, I just think you need, you need those macros. And then for the same reason why, if you're trying to conceive pregnant or breastfeeding, not the right time to be intermittent fasting. Again, I see a lot of fit pros. They, you know, it's almost like they hang a shingle. It's a badge of honor that they're restricting, you know, they're, they're doing these long fasts and they're pregnant or they're breastfeeding. I'm like, the only person you're hurting is that baby or that fetus. And so ultimately I'm, I'm not a fan under those circumstances. And if you don't sleep, it's not the right strategy. It doesn't mean forever. It just means right now. Yeah. Well, 
thank you so much for, for being here. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you think is important before we head off? Um, you know, I think just being explaining to people that intermittent fasting comes in lots of different shapes and sizes, meaning you may start off with a 14 hour fast and that's great. Uh, oftentimes the longer you fast, the more benefits you get, but it's almost, I, I always use the analogy, you need training wheels on. So mm -hmm. before you're doing really long fast, make sure you can master a, a shorter fast. You know, we know that there are health benefits from people that even do a five, two split, which means five days a week, you eat your mm -hmm. normal, you eat your mm -hmm. normal meals. And then two days a week, uh, if you're a male, you'll have 600 calories a day or less, or women, a woman less than 500, that those can even be beneficial. So I, I think it's, it's important to, to note that intermittent fasting comes in lots of shapes and sizes, and there are different benefits depending on how long you're fasting. But definitely one of those things that um, you have to kind of figure out for yourself what makes the most sense. Awesome. And where can people find you if they want to get in touch with you? Yeah. So uh, my website's probably a great place. My podcast is there and, and lots of talks that I've done, www.cynthiathurlow.com. I'm active on Instagram and Twitter. I've got a private Facebook group that's free called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle Backslash My Name. Um, and certainly tune into the podcast, Everyday Wellness. Lots awesome. of goodness there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us here today. Really appreciate your insight and your knowledge. It was just a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so, so much. Yeah. Um, for everybody else out there, if you want to see this in video, you can head on over to our YouTube page at Fearless Health Podcast, or you can see us on iTunes. When you're there, just give us a five-star review. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to fearlesshealthpodcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.